morning. Our scripture reading today comes from the book of 2 Peter. We're in chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Well, hello there, guys. Good morning. Glad to have you. Welcome to Stonehouse Church. My name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors here. So here we go. We're going to dig in. 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21 is our text today. Uh, I'm going to read that. We're in a series exploring the heart of Stonehouse. Distinctly Us is the title of the series. We're really just exploring kind of the values of Stonehouse Church as expressed, um, kind of trying to explain uh, who it is that we are. Uh, we talked a couple weeks ago about um, how values come about, um, and, and we really believe this, like Jesus is genuinely interested in transforming us into his own image and likeness so that he might be glorified through our lives, all right? So we, we actually believe that human beings can have at a heart level uh, changes of motivation, of attitude, um, deep internal things that when those things are affected and stirred up, eventually they lead to uh, new and different and God-glorifying behaviors, right? Now, we talked last week about the gospel versus religion and what religion would tell you, religion kind of just meaning like man's attempts at pleasing God, what religion would tell you is you need to change your behaviors to become a better person, but the gospel says you're not capable of any true and lasting change in your own power and strength. The only way you'll ever see any difference in your life is if God changes your heart. And God, in fact, has promised from the Old Testament all the way into the New that He wants to and is going to, is going to make a way to transform our hearts. And as that heart transformation happens, birthed in us then are new attitudes, new motivations, new behaviors, things that reflect what's inside of us, right? So our, our belief then is if we have a group of people encountering Jesus in the gospel, being transformed by this power of God, that collectively we will begin to function differently, right? We won't just be a group of people uh, just kind of pulled together by the common place we live in, by the common amount of money we make, by the com common color of skin, by whatever, but we're actually going to be pulled into a new existence because of a new people that God is making by giving new hearts to all of the kinds of the people in the world, because that's what he's all about. And so as that transformation begins to happen, we believe that there will be characteristics, there will be noticeable things present within the community, within the gathered people of God, the gathered and scattered people of God. And so if we're going to be a true church marked by Jesus and his word and the power of the transformation of the gospel, then we're actually going to live out some specific things. And as we talk about these values, we're trying to kind of put a pin on what are the things we're going to live out, right? What are some of the high values that are going to form us as a people? What are some of the, the, the characteristics and the attitudes and, and the formational um, functioning of us as a church. And as we talk about this, I want to be very careful to help you, uh, help us all understand that, that we're not up here throwing mud. 
right? This isn't us posturing, pounding our chest and saying, how great are we, right? That sounds fun. That's not the point of speaking about our values. In fact, we believe a lot of places that look at Scripture, that believe in Jesus, that worship Him alone, would probably value a lot of these things, but we want to state them clearly so that we can unite around them and so that we can pursue them collectively. Right? Because the matter of fact is that some of these values exist as we sit today. Right? They, are, they, are, they are realized and functioning values. I have heard from your mouths, from the mouths of other people, I have experienced myself some of these values that we'll be talking about. But also, some of these values are aspirational in that we see the gospel is leading us toward them, but they're not yet fully functioning among us. Right? And so actually in a couple of weeks we're going to run smack dab into one of those values and it's probably going to convict the, out of all of us, right? So some of these things are functioning around us, are existing among us, maybe at varying degrees and levels. And some of them are things that we want to pursue. That because of how we see Jesus in Scripture and what God has done through him, that we want to pursue them as values. And we see distinctively in our context, in our time, and in our place, that in order to bring attention to Jesus, which is the ultimate aim of any church, that we're really going to have to actually live these values out because the world is screaming anti and against and opposed to Jesus and his word. And if that's the, the, the voice of the world, if that's the, 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 the prevalent message of our society and the place where most of uh, our neighbors and our friends and our enemies stand, then we're going to have to become a particular people in order to actually articulate to them the glory of Jesus. Because if we just stand up and shout and yell, they're just going to turn a deaf ear. But if we begin to live distinctly, uniquely, attractively, uh, humbly and compassionately, being formed by God and what he says, then there's something that scripture calls an aroma, right? There's a, there's a fragrance, there's a whisper of God amongst the people like that. And we believe the greatest apologetic for the existence of God is the existence of a transformed people living out the ways of Jesus. And so we want the world, let, let, let it be known, we want the world to know Jesus, Right? The greatest hope in all of the universe is to be united with your maker through Christ and his life for you and his death for you and his resurrection for you. There is no other hope that is greater than that hope, and we want to point to that hope with our lives. And so that is what this series is all about, and this passage in First or in Second Peter uh, and our second value uh, have to do with the word of God. So I'm going to read... 2 Peter 1, 19-21 again. And then we'll pray, and then we will dig in. So here it is. Uh, they, uh, what am I doing? I'm in the wrong book. What am I doing? Okay, here we go. Sorry. <laughs> um, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves this morning and uh, beg for your help. Um, no human that has ever lived deserves um, to hear from you 
because of how holy and perfect and pure you are, and yet you have delivered uh, your word to us uh, by your own work in human history. And God, here today in this place and in this time, again, you desire for us to hear your word. Uh, I am not fit to deliver said word. No one in this place is, but you, because of grace, um, have washed us and cleansed us and made us worthy by the, by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we stand now today boldly uh, approaching your throne of grace, saying, Dear God, we need life, and we need life from your words. We need to hear from you. We need to know what you've said. We need to know what you're saying. And we need to know the one of whom you have spoken. That is, we need to know Jesus. We need to see him clearly. We need to be able to worship him more fully. And God, so we ask this morning that you would open our hearts, that you would uh, enliven our spirits, that you would quicken our minds and let our eyes see um, your word, and uh, most gloriously, that we would see your word fulfilled um, in Jesus, who is, in fact, the word made flesh. Um, So this morning, God, we put our hope in you, and uh, we trust in your spirit to uh, guide this time and to work among us, and uh, we ask that Christ be glorified in all the things that we say and do this morning. We pray all this in his precious name. Amen. So I um, recently was watching a, um, a wartime documentary on World War II, and I was pulled into it. I've read and studied and understood um, a lot of World War II history because I got some opportunities to visit some really cool sites. Uh, but recently I saw that a documentary was re- released with World War II footage enhanced into color. Um, and so uh, it's, it's been a, a, a really enlightening thing just to kind of see a bunch of old footage brought to life uh, through the technology of enhancing video and stuff. And uh, So I've kind of been replunged into the historical story and, and, and all of the countries and the timelines of, of World War II. It's, um, it's vast in its scope and significant. And as I was uh, watching this, I was reminded of one of my uh, a trip that my wife and I went on we got to visit a couple countries in Europe. Uh, one of them was France, and we went to the beaches of Normandy, and so we went to Omaha Beach, and we saw the cemetery there that is American soil on uh, the French uh, countryside, and uh, took some sand from the beach and put it in a bottle and went to a museum and uh, stood on the cliffs of Pont du Hoc, which was a, an embattlement place that uh, uh, the German fortresses were established so they could fire at the incoming ships and just heard the story of the Army Rangers scaling cliff and rescuing the, the guys who were attacking the beach and just all this amazing stuff. And, and I remembered the, the feeling of, of some of that experience and, and, and knowing um, that, you know, just an entire people's lives were utterly transformed and, and changed and transitioned through that. Uh, one of the episodes was about, uh, you know, the prison camps and things of that nature. And my wife and I on the same trip were able to visit um, a camp in Belgium. It was just outside of Brussels. It was called Brendonk, and it was uh, basically a prison camp. It wasn't a death camp, but it was a place where um, traitors were held and were questioned, and intelligence was acquired, and, of course, there was labor and all that terrible stuff that happened there as well. Um, but just uh, a couple of miles away from that Brendonk camp uh, was the exact spot where uh, William Tyndale was strangled and burned at the stake. Um, that's a long journey to get to William Tyndale, but here we go. William Tyndale was a uh, reformer in uh, the 16th century, and so he uh, translated the Bible into English. 
He was the first guy who did that work. Uh, apparently, William Tyndale knew eight languages so well that you couldn't tell which one was his native tongue, um, which is pretty spectacular. Um, and he was theologically a giant. He was named um, by some uh, a captain among the reformers just in the way that he led and taught and wrote. Um, and he translated the Bible into English um, to the chagrin of the Roman Catholic Church, who at the time declared him a heretic, partly because he translated the Bible and partly because he called out uh, King Harry or King Henry uh, for his adultery and, and divorce and stuff like that. So anyways, he was a hated man. He had to run for his life. Uh, and he was hiding in Antwerp and uh, was uh, on the run, betrayed by a close friend, I guess, um, nice close friend, and uh, captured just outside of Brussels and was strangled and burned at the stake. And his whole passion was to teach people's, people God's word, which was why he pursued the labor of translating scripture into uh, the English language. Um, and as he was uh, about to die, uh, he boldly, loudly, and confidently prayed before all of the people, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Um, and within four years of his death, the King of England demanded that the English translations of the Bible be printed at Mass. Um, and uh, the whole world was transformed uh, because of God's Word being made very read, uh, readily available um, to those uh, who were speaking the English language at the time. Of course, Gutenberg's press was cranking at that time, and so the Bible went out uh, in multitude and was spread amongst uh, many people. And so William Tyndale and others like him had this massive passion uh, for translating God's word into the language of people. It's a work that continues to happen today. Wycliffe Society is actually headquartered over in Orlando, just a little ways away from here. Uh, you can go to a Bible translation museum uh, in their, uh, at their property and you can see all of the languages that the Bible have been trans has been translated to in the world. Uh, and it, it's actually their goal uh, to translate the Bible into every, quote, language of the heart, is what they say. And so they actually want it to be translated into more than just simply all of the languages. They want it to be translated into all of the dialects of all of the languages. Their heart is that everybody would be able to read the word in a way that they get it, that's potent to them, that's powerful and relatable and understandable to them. Why? Right? Why? Because it's God's word. <laughs> Because it is the essence of everything that God has said to us as his creation. And in it we find all of his beautiful truth come to us and leading us to real life in God. And so people have lost their heads because of their desire to translate the scriptures into the languages around the world to help people understand the truth of who God is and what he's done and what that means for us in our time and in our day. And a lot of the passion for translating God's word in the world throughout history has actually led to educational endeavors that have produced and proliferated literacy around the globe. So much of current literacy in, in third world type countries and, and, and all of the frontier type places uh, can be credited to a passion for God's word. And so we need to understand a passion for God's word also leads us to a passion for reading, a passion for people to be able to, to speak and read and listen and articulate uh, true things in the form of words because the words are powerful. Why? Because God's word is powerful. And why is God's word powerful? It's because through his word he created everything that exists and everything that is. 
We see that in the beginning and as repeated also in John chapter 1. And so as we uh, look at what we want to value as a church, God's word is way up top on the list. We talked last week about value number one, and that value was this, that we value the gospel over religion. And I mentioned this last week that these values are stated in kind of an equation form and then um, extrapolated into a sentence, but the, the ideas are that we value something and that we understand the value of the value by also stating kind of the anti-value. And so that's why we talked about the gospel over religion last week. And this week we'll look at our second value, and that is this, that we value God's word over worldly wisdom. Okay? We value God's word over worldly wisdom wisdom. Now understand when I say that I'm not saying that there is no wisdom in the world. (laughs) Okay? I'm not saying that. Okay? Some of us have strong reactions against like kind of more fundamentalist rigid type stuff and we think when I say God's word we value it over worldly, worldly wisdom that I'm saying the world isn't wise. It's not what I'm saying. Okay? Uh, We're going to talk a little bit more about God's Word and its comparison and contrast over worldly wisdom. But what we're saying is that we, because we are a people of God who are formed by the Word of God, uh, we will value that Word above all other words, right? That we will treasure it, that we will pursue it, that we will seek to know it and understand it because it is the very words of God that give us life. And so to get into this fully, we're going to have to dig into some information about the Bible. And so the front end here of our time is, is going to be a little, uh, little teachy heavy, right? And we're going to transition quickly uh, into hopefully more kind of a sermon toward the end. Um, and I got a lot of Bible references, and so they'll be on the screen, and hopefully you'll be able to catch them if you ever need anything that I refer to or anything that I uh, had on the screen or anything that is said, uh, let me know. I'd love to send you, I can even just send you my notes if you ever want that uh, or copy and paste things from them. So real quickly, however, I want to just talk about what the Bible isn't and what the Bible is, okay? Um, Again, we we see value over the anti-value and sometimes it's helpful to see not just a truth but uh, what that truth is kind of opposed to. And so uh, in our world, because we're largely... Uh, ling- we're, we're largely living through the lingering effect of Christendom, right? So um, there, are, there are societal constructs and norms that are in existence today because of the way our country started and where we came from and all that kind of stuff, blah, 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 blah. Uh, that is to say that there are, there are um, kind of concepts and ideas about what the Bible is that are just out there, right? You may hear people say them from time to time. You may read them on uh, social media or on, on uh hear them on TV or whatever. But I want to I kind of carefully say these are wrong. <laughs> like, like we reject these few ideas just because they're, like sometimes they're actually harmful, right? Uh, sometimes they're just simply misleading, right? So to, to kind of just make a little summary statement that isn't fully true uh, can kind of mislead us. Uh, and a lot of times they're just not full enough, right? That's why here we, we try to carefully kind of walk around cliches and, and avoid them um, because I, I just don't think they're valuable for you, right? I, I just don't think they add to your faith and they enhance your worship of Jesus. I think they, they lead you to kind of just a, a quick glimpse and a, and a dismissal 
of God. And, and God deserves so much more than a quick glimpse and dismissal. He deserves for us to dig into kind of the nuance and the, uh, and, and, uh, the complexity of some of these things. And so a lot of these cliches are just simply oversimplified. Um, and so we kind of want to reject them. So here's a couple of these things. You may have heard them, that the B-I-B-L-E is basic instructions before leaving earth. Now, hey, you know, like that's a cute little thing, but what, like if you dig into that, what does it mean? It means the Bible is just there to tell you a bunch of stuff to do. And if that's what the Bible is, then it's hopeless. Because I don't know about you, but when I like set up to do things, you know, like type A, got to get it done, let's make it happen, right? And I build a list. Either I fall short of the list because I'm an incompetent human who can't fulfill my, my own hopes and expectations, or I fulfill the list and I become an arrogant, mean guy, right? So if the Bible is just simply instruction, it's going to lead us to either despair or pride, okay? It's a cute little cliche, but it's just not full enough. And if indeed it's true, it's missing so much of what God's Word actually is. And so, kindly and gently, let's reject the Bible and basic instructions before leaving earth. The Bible also isn't a roadmap for life, right? Like, so I'm like walking through college and I fall in love with this girl and I'm like, man, should I marry her or should I go to graduate school? Jeremiah, there we go. But fear not, O Jacob, my servant, or be not dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from far away. Hmm. Far away. I should go to graduate school. What am I doing? Right? Like, it's just not what the Bible's for. Okay? So to think, like, I'll be wise and I'll walk perfectly through all of the decisions of life and I won't get a thing wrong and I'll know which way to go and I'll, I'll have every decision mapped out for me. No. No, 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 no. That's way oversimplification, right? And it's completely incorrect utility of what the Scriptures are for. And so we would reject this idea that the Bible is a roadmap for life. Now, does it tell you what righteousness is? and how to pursue life and godliness? Yes, absolutely, right? Absolutely. But the, the oversimplification of like, turn this way, go this way, travel five miles, now do this, that's not what the Bible is. The, the Bible also isn't just simply God's big answer book for life's tough questions, right? In fact, sometimes Scripture doesn't give us some of the answers for some of the tough questions that we're asking. Sometimes it doesn't. A lot of faith is mystery. A lot of faith is yet to be seen. A lot of walking with Jesus is in a fog, right? Seeing some things clearly today, but not fully like we will one day. That's actually the promise of Scripture, right? And so at times, we're going to have to come to complex questions and difficulties and not have a full answer in Scripture for them. And we'll have to live in that mystery, right? We're not against the why, right? We say this a lot here, like ask, dig in, question. Look at the Psalms. Those guys knew God and walked closely with God, and yet sometimes they shook their fists to heaven. They said, where are you, God? Right? Why, why does the wicked prosper is a refrain repeated ad nauseum in the Psalms. 
the refrain repeated in nauseam by me, why, God, do the righteous have trouble and the wicked prosper? There are difficult questions, and the Bible isn't just simply an answer book. It is so much greater than that reality. Fourthly, the Bible is not, and this is comical, but it's out there. It is not a complex revelation concealing secret codes and hidden timelines that if unveiled properly will tell you when the world will end and what stock to invest in next year. Right? The Bible code idea is garbage. I'll just say it clearly. It's absolute nonsense. Okay? The writers in Scripture did not hide stuff in the Scriptures so that we could figure out when the world's going to end. Right? Actually, when prophecy is in Scripture, it's pretty clear. This is going to happen. Actually, at this time, this is going to happen. You can look through the record of Scripture and see prophecy again and again and again being fulfilled because it was laid out clearly and fulfilled clearly. And so that idea of the Bible code is, is just silly. It's nonsense. And finally, the Bible isn't an ultimate guide to living well so as to attain success, incredible wealth, and earthly prominence. Okay? The health and wealth gospel would like to tell you um, that the Bible is all about how to get rich, right? That's really bad. It's really silly, right? Because our Savior is a poor man who died brutal death on the cross. Eleven of his twelve closest followers were murdered, um, most of them running for their lives, um, not denying Christ, but they had nothing, right? Um, the normal expectation of a follower of Jesus is to give up life, so that you can actually find it, right? To give away wealth so that you can be a blessing to others. Um, not to pursue it for selfish gain uh, and to establish your own significance, right? And so the Bible doesn't give us all the tips and tricks to wealth um, and, and riches, right? Are there things in Scripture about how to manage your finances? Yeah, absolutely. Are there wise ways that God talks to us about how we should conduct uh, our lives, and the way we work, and the way we invest, and the way we save? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it's not some kind of guaranteed map to those things. Um, it is so much deeper and richer than simply earthly prosperity. Uh, so, those are some of the things that the Bible isn't. And I want to give you just a couple of quick facts before we dive into the nature of the Bible. So the Bible is Old and New Testaments. Uh, the Old Testament is 39 books. The New Testament is 27 books. So the Bible is kind of a library, right? The actual word, Biblia, um, is, basically means library. Um, and so that's, that's what we have in the Scriptures, a united library of books uh, making a complete canon. In the Scriptures, you'll find 44 different authors Three different languages, well, ours is all English, but like, you know, originally. Three different languages. Uh, the Bible was written over a period of about 1,500 years, 1,500 years. Um, it was penned on three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. And it has stood the test of battle and opposition, like we heard in the story of William Tyndale, because it prevails as God's word. He has secured it, he has established it, 
and he has preserved it for all time. And thirdly, something that's important to note, and we try to speak of this distinction, is that the Bible is literature. Okay? A lot of people say or may ask you, do you take the Bible literally? Right? And when I'm asked that, I say yes, but you need to understand that I take it literarily. Okay? I take it literally, as in it is true, and I read every word as true. But I also read every word within the genre of which it is constructed. Okay? Because the Psalms are different than the Gospels, are different than the historical accounts, are different than Revelation, are different than First and Second Timothy, and so on and so forth. And so reading the Bible as literature leads us to a more rich understanding because we see the context, we see the purpose, we see the people, we see the direction, we see the goal of all of the different types of the books in the Bible. So when you read poetry, you have to understand it's poetry, right? You read it differently than you read the Gospels, which are a historical account of the life of Jesus Christ and his teaching. So we have to read the scriptures literarily. So yes, we take it literally, and we understand it literarily, right? We understand that there are some things in scripture that just simply explain what happened, right? They are descriptive. They're just telling us events. Just because Solomon had that many wives doesn't mean that it's a good thing to have that many wives, right? So we, we read that in the context of what that's about. We read that that it's descriptive and not prescriptive because the Bible isn't telling us in the account of Solomon, hey, you should marry a lot of women, right? The Bible from Genesis and retold by Jesus and Matthew and retold all throughout Scripture is that you should marry one woman <laughs> and be with her forever. Right? It's just an example of some of the different realities in Scripture. And so we see that some Scripture is different literature and that it's important to understand those differences. All in all, the Bible is God's self-disclosure to his creation, whereby he has communicated every necessity for spiritual life and godliness and revealed not only the path of salvation but his plan for the entire world. That is something we're going to unpack here for the next little while. Those facts are helpful and important, but it's even more important for us to understand the nature and the characteristics of the Bible. And so I want to talk about five characteristics of the Bible quickly before we move into our final little part. So five things. The Bible is true, it's inspired, it's infallible, it's inerrant, and it's authoritative. Okay? Now, it's hard to say everything that is necessary about the Bible. It's actually impossible today to do that at all. Uh, it's nearly impossible for an entire semester in a class in seminary to actually do that. Uh, so we're up against some pretty unfair odds here this morning, but I want to at least give us uh, a drop of all of these significant char characteristics of the Bible. And so first off, the Bible is true. Psalm 1830 says, This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. And Jesus, in his high priestly prayer in John 17, that's just simply where he was praying for his disciples and all of the disciples to come, namely you and me and everyone around the world from all of the different types of the people. Jesus said, sanctify them, saying this to his Father. He's saying, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And so we see that the Bible is true. And so when we, do, when we are asked, do you read it? and take it literally, we say yes, because it is true. 
because the statements are true, the history is true, the people are true, the God that is revealed in it is true, the existence of humanity and how we look and how we feel and how we function and what's broken inside of us and what our ultimate goods are, what the ultimate good is for us, like all these things that are laid out in Scripture are true. And so we look to Scripture to be truth for us, understanding that each book is to be interpreted according to its context and purpose and in reverent obedience to the Lord who speaks through it in living hope. All of us as believers in Jesus are exhorted to study the Scriptures and to diligently apply them to our lives. And this is a task that will take you all your life. One of the glorious realities of Scripture is that the depth is unplumbable. It will never stop being rich and life-changing to you because we are so limited in what we can grasp and comprehend and hold on to, and God is absolutely unlimited in his wisdom and in his word. He tells us so much about himself, and what he tells us about himself can be trusted. He tells us so much about ourselves, and what he tells us about ourselves can be trusted. He tells us so much about the world, the existence of evil, right? The complexity of the global systems, right? I mean, all of this stuff is in Scripture. It, it shows the brokenness of man and how the brokenness of man affects all of creation. And what God says about these things can be trusted. We can look at them and see that they are true and understand that they are a part of our experience and be led to a greater depth in knowing who God is, who we are, and what this world that he's made is like. So the scriptures are true. Secondly, the scriptures are inspired. Second Timothy 3:16 and 17 say this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All Scripture is breathed out by God. The inspiration of Scripture is a glorious reality that shows us that God himself, through human authors, has given us his word. Right? This is a beautiful truth. R.C. Sproul summarizes inspiration by saying this, God made use of men in revealing his word, empowering them to receive his truth, and protecting them as they wrote so that they could give us exactly what he wants us to have. Now the process of inspiration is not so much that God dictated directly everything in the Bible. Okay? That happened here and there. Right? You'll read many times the Thus saith the Lord, or God speaks to a prophet and says to the prophet, go and say this, right? And gets a sentence or a paragraph or whatever. That, that is here and there in Scripture, absolutely. And all of Scripture, even those things that aren't direct dictation from God, is all God's Word. How? That's interesting because God actually works by leading through the talents and the style and the vocabulary and the grammar of the authors that are writing out the Scripture. He works in and through them to give us a book that is varied in its context and style but is unified in its teaching. 
Our passage that we read in 1 Peter 1, we'll read it again in a second, talks about how prophecy wasn't produced by the will of man, but by the will of God, because people, humans, man, were carried along by God as they wrote. Right? The influence and the working of God in people brought about God's true word to us. That's what inspiration is. God breathing out through those who wrote scripture so that his true word came through their pens, through their writing. This process of inspiration is an organic process. God working with those people as he carried, along, carried them along by their spirit or by his spirit. That's one of the reasons why when you read Moses, it's so different than Jeremiah. Right? That's why even in the books of the minor prophets, Obadiah and Nahum, all these different guys wrote at similar times, and what they said sounded so unique because it was based in their time, in their place, in their experience, and the things that God was showing and revealing to them. That's why Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, the four Gospels that show us the same life of Jesus, the same teaching of Jesus, the same death of Jesus, the same resurrection of Jesus, all seem a little different because they were different people. They were actually writing with a little bit of different purpose to different people groups, and yet they were writing the same truth of the Gospel and the story of Jesus and his teaching and his miracles and his life and his death. And so the scriptures are inspired, and because they are inspired, number two, then number three, they are infallible. Again, Second Peter 1, 20 and 21, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. To confess that the Bible is infallible is to confess that the scriptures are incapable of teaching any error. Taken in itself, this is a term that strongly presents the perfection of scriptures. Listen, the prophets and the apostles did not error. They could not err when writing scripture. Okay? Where we find error is in our incorrect interpretations of scripture. Right? So the prophets and the apostles in their writing did not error when, um, uh, when writing the scriptures. And so inerrant, or, uh, infallibility points then to inerrancy, which is number four. And that says that the Bible contern, contains no affirmations of anything that is contrary to fact. So these translations might err, but the original manuscripts penned by the prophets and apostles do not. And John Frame says this about inerrancy, that inerrant language is language that makes good on its own claims not on claims that are made for it by thoughtless readers. And so what Scripture claims is true is true, and it is true to itself, and it reveals that truth within itself. All of these things, the fact that Scripture is true, the fact that Scripture is inspired and infallible and inerrant, point to the fact that Scripture is authoritative. And this is why... God's word over worldly wisdom is a value for us because we hold Scripture as authoritative over us. Right? We like to say it with a simple illustration that God's word goes over us. We do not stand on top of it. Okay? 
So when it comes to understanding things and we have our perspective of how things are, if God's word speaks to that truth and that reality, then we submit to the truth of God's word rather than submit God's word to our truth. This is the potency of God's word being valued over worldly wisdom because we've been trained, indoctrinated even. We are currently swimming in all sorts of concepts of truth. Okay? Some of them are true and some of them are not. And what Scripture says about any of those things is what we come to as ultimate authority. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul charges his son in the faith with these words. Starting in verse 1, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. He says, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itchy ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. This is what we mean by the word being authoritative that there are truths out there that we're going to sometimes want to grab hold of and make ours because they're easier or they're more comfortable or they're more appealing or they don't, re- or they don't reveal the rub between our unrighteousness and God's holiness, right? Or they don't point out the fact that we might be making detrimental, erroneous decisions or that we might be believing things about ourselves that are not true or about God that are not true. And when we come to these moments where we have the proclivity to itch our ears, meaning we just want some sweet sounds, we just want some easy teachings, we have to set those aside and under the authority of Jesus. Scripture calls us to test things by the truth of God's word. 1 Corinthians 14, 29, 1 Thessalonians 5, 21, 1 John 4, 1, all say to test when people speak and say this is the truth about God. We are to test that with Scripture, right? Because harmful, misleading, and destructive things are said about God that if followed to their end will produce nothing but death. But God's word leads to life not only here, but life everlasting. And so the scriptures are the authoritative rule and guide for all of Christian life and practice in doctrine. And they are totally sufficient. They must not be added, added to, superseded, or changed by later tradition or by worldly wisdom. Every doctrinal formulation, whether of creed, confession, or theology, must be put to the test of the full counsel of God in Scripture. There's a uh, proclamation of the Reformation uh, simply stated as sola scriptura. It means by scripture alone. It was one of the five solas of the Reformation period. And this sola scriptura affirmation that we believe in, that we put ourselves under, it says this, that all truth necessary for our salvation and for spiritual life is taught either explicitly or implicitly in Scripture. Now, there's a distinction between sola scriptura and solo scriptura. Okay? 
sola scriptura tells us what I just said, but solo scriptura makes the claim that all truth of every kind is found in scripture. And that's actually not what scripture teaches nor what we believe. Right? Because, for example, the scriptures have little or nothing to say about the following studies. Molecular dynamics, the history of Chinese dynasties, marine biology, the rules of Spanish grammar, string theory, or three-phase induction motors. The Bible doesn't talk about those things. But there are truth in those things. Right? Some of it's sure, some of it's shaky, some of it's yet to be fully exposed and discovered, yet there are truths in those things, and the Bible does not teach on those things, and that's, there's many things out there. So what sola scriptura, not solo scriptura says, is that whatever scripture does speak about, it is the final authority on that thing. Does that make sense? So listen, there's some hot-headed preachers that want to grab hold of current events and say, this is what God says. I'm trying to be really, really careful. Oftentimes, they're overstepping their bounds. Because God's Word does not speak on every arena. Okay? And so there are times when we just don't have something to say from Scripture about a topic. That doesn't mean you can't say something. It just simply means you can't say God says. Right? And it is particularly dangerous to say God says, if in fact God has not said. And that's what the authoritative reality of Scripture is all about. That we will say God says when God has in fact said. When it comes to some of our preferences, to some of our fields of study and expertise, right? To some areas of life and reality, we can't say God says. Because God, in fact, hasn't. Sola Scriptura says whatever Scripture says, whatever topic Scripture addresses, it is the final authority on that topic, on those issues. Does that make sense, that distinction, the sola and the solo? So therefore, all of this said to affirm the fact that Scripture is the highest and supreme authority to us that we will come to it and submit to it on every matter that it speaks to us on. And here is the truth of Scripture, that God has spoken to us in the Scriptures and that God is today speaking to us. The big question is how, and the answer to how is through His Word. That's why we must test everything by Scripture, right? That's why we must measure what we are saying God says by the truth, in fact, of what God has said in his word. And so God is speaking to us today, and it's because his spirit is illuminating his word to us. Jesus promised in John 14 and in John 16 that when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to teach you about me through the scriptures, that he's going to remind you of the things I've said so that you can walk in truth. That's what the Spirit of God does, okay? The Spirit opens our hearts and our minds and our understanding to God's Scripture. It doesn't say some extra-biblical kind of something or other, right? 
Again, same illustration. I'm in college. I'm in love with a girl. Should I marry the girl? Should I go to graduate school? Right? I shouldn't sit for hours in meditation and just wait for the Spirit to say, the girl! Okay? No. That's not the promise of the Holy Spirit. That's not what Jesus said the Holy Spirit was going to do. Okay? The Spirit can bear witness to us of the truth. The Spirit can lead us into scriptural truth. The Spirit can lead us to submit to Jesus. The Spirit can lead us into wisdom. Amen? That's what the Spirit does. And so God's Word is the final Word. So finally, I want to get to the less teachy part. If you've got a Bible, turn to Psalm 19. If you've got an app, tap to Psalm 19. If we take facts alone, if we take information and structure and genre and literary device and the authors and the languages, if we take all these things alone, though helpful, they may lead us to a lifeless interaction with the Word of God. They may. Okay? They may. Hopefully, by the work of God's Spirit in our hearts, the Word will come to life for us. Because it is, in fact, the living Word. Right? It is not just dead historical document, but it is alive and moving and confronting, and comforting, and leading. Why? Because the Word is the powerful utterance of God to form and create. It's what He did in the beginning, and it's what He's continuing to do today. Through God's Word, He is forming and creating disciples of Jesus who begin to look to and love and be formed by the very things that he has uttered to us. There is in Scripture these interesting little passages where people speak about the Word as if it is a person to be hugged by, as if it is someone to be comforted by. Right? Psalm 19 is one of those places. There's many other in the Psalm, many others in the Psalms, And I just want to read from verses 7 to 11 in Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Now listen to this, verses 10 and 11. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, 
there is great reward. The psalmist saw God's word as true, as factual, as real, but also almost in a romantic sense. I mean, it's like poetry, what he's saying about God's word. There's, it's like dripping with honey. It's so sweet, God's law is. There's a preciousness to it that I, I want this more than my gold rings, more than treasures. I want, I want to know God's word. I want to hear it. I want to experience it. I want to see God in it. I want to know the world through it. There's a preciousness to the word. One of the greatest realities about the preciousness of God's word is that God's final word to us is a person. It's Jesus Christ. Right? John 1 says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. Right? It was speaking of Jesus. In John 1.14 it says, then the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I love the message translation of that verse that moved into the neighborhood. God's word is Jesus. And he became flesh and blood as an undeniable, perfectly clear, glorious, compassionate, soft and tender, true, forgiving, real and living word. Jesus, the God-man. Fully God from all eternity past became man, lived 100% God, 100% man, represented God perfectly before us. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, a glorious passage that says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, right? God's word. God's word. That's how God spoke to us. He inspired the writing of Scripture, is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. But... He says, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. What is Jesus? Verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. God has spoken to us by his word, and he has finally spoken to us in Jesus. That's why what I just said about the Spirit is true, that the point of the Spirit is to remind us of Jesus, because Jesus is the final word. We don't need anything more than Jesus. We shouldn't seek after anything more than Jesus. We shouldn't long for any more gaps to be filled in by, than by what Jesus filled because Jesus is the fullness of God's Word. And we see this in the way that Jesus interacted with Scripture, that He read Scripture and He quoted Scripture. Jesus talked as though the history of Scripture was real history. He talked of the days of Noah and the days of David and the days of Abraham because that was real, because it is real, because it's true and the living Word was affirmed in Jesus. And finally and ultimately and gloriously and abundantly and perfectly, Jesus said that the Scriptures pointed to him. 
He said, that's what it's all for, you guys. If you want a secret code to the Bible, the secret code is this, that it's about Jesus. Right? In John 5, 39 to 40, he's arguing with the Pharisees, and he says to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He says, you haven't found the ultimate end of the scripture because I am the ultimate end of the scripture. I am the word come alive for you. I am the life that the promise of scripture foretold. Just as last week we finished with the story of somebody who sought Jesus, so this week I want us to finish with a story of some men who encountered Jesus. Turn with me to Luke 24. Jesus, at this time, has finished his ministry. He's healed lepers. He's raised people from the dead. He's confronted religious pride in the Pharisees and said things like he just said in John 5, you're missing the point. (laughs) He took a knee and comforted little children who at that time and in that day were dismissed as worthless. When he was at dinner with a bunch of church people, a woman of the night walked in and began to weep on his feet and anoint him with oil. And all the church folks raised their nose at her. And Jesus had compassion on her. He talked about her as though she was forgiven. Right there, right then. Tax collectors who might as well have been terrorists were welcomed to lunch with Jesus. He did nothing but good, brought nothing but life, preached nothing but truth. And what happened? He was killed for it. And on the third day he rose. And after his resurrection, he appeared bodily to different disciples in different places. Paul telling us in 1 Corinthians actually that over 40 days he appeared to 400 some people in the flesh, like ate breakfast at the lake in the flesh type of stuff. And in Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 13, there's the story of a few disciples who are walking away from Jerusalem on a road called Emmaus. Why were they walking away? Because Jesus was dead, they thought. It was over, they thought. Right? We didn't conquer Rome, they thought. Jesus was just another guy, they thought. And as they're walking on the road... Jesus appeared to them. At that time, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he asked them, he said, what are you guys talking about? (laughs) What's going on? And he began to tell Jesus what they were talking about. It was him. They were talking about him. They were talking about the uproar in Jerusalem. They were talking about the man who was killed. They were talking about all these things that had happened. And in verse 25... After they had said 
We don't know what's going on because suddenly his body's gone. Jesus says this to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? In verse 27 it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then he had dinner with them and he broke bread. And when he broke bread, their eyes were opened. They realized who they were talking to. It was Jesus. And suddenly, poof, Jesus was gone. This is post-resurrection body of Jesus. It could disappear through walls and vanish into thin air. And they said in verse 32, they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? The reason we value God's word over everything, over worldly wisdom, over our own selves, is because the truth of God revealed in Jesus is fully given to us in his word that our hearts might be set on fire, that our hearts might burn within us. Why will our hearts burn within us? Because the truth of God resonates with the depths of those he's created. When God speaks his true word to us, it comes to us in power and affirms in the depths of who we are so much about what is real and good and right and holy and glorious. And this word is what forms us as a people into God's church so that we might be a people of God who are richly indwelled by the word of God as it teaches us, as it washes us. Sometimes the word will test us and correct us. It'll refine us and it'll comfort us. It'll shape us. It'll make our hearts tender. And it will lead us to Jesus. That's why we value God's word. And as his word is prioritized among us and shapes us as his people, it will humble us and turn us into those who are desirous of his words, speaking truth to our hearts that are prone to wander. Amen. We value God's word at Stonehouse Church, and we need the power of God's spirit in order to do so. Let's pray. God, this morning we are utterly dependent upon your spirit to lead us into truth. And Lord, there are times when we've understood the potency, the significance, the comfort or confrontation, the the truth in Scripture, because we've felt it, we've known it, we've seen it, we've experienced it like these men on the road to Emmaus. And also there are times where even in the midst of reading your word, we will feel like we don't hear your truth, that we're not experiencing your voice. 
Nonetheless, either in the lush garden of, of reaping the benefits of knowing intimately your word, or in the harsh deserts of struggling to see you, or struggling to find you, or struggling to hear you, in both places your word is true. In both experiences your word is true. And we need, more than anything else in all of our lives, to submit ourselves to the beauty the wonder, the truth, and the authority of your scriptures that have been given to us by inspiration that we might know who you are, that we might know what you've done, that we might see Jesus, who is the fulfillment of all things, the one who was prophesied, the one who fulfilled, the one to whom the scriptures speak. God, we are in a time... We're holding on to your word makes us a little different. God, I pray you'd comfort us in this time and help us to realize this has always been the experience of your people because the world doubts and pushes against and rejects and wants to cut apart your word. Lord, we want to love it. We want to cherish it. We want to long for it. We want to be brought into submission to it. So God, form us as a people into a people of your word for the glory of Jesus that we might reflect your goodness to those who look in. We need you. We trust you. And we love you. In your name we pray. Amen.